Personally, I think heaven is going to be a beautiful place. It's going to be bright and sunny every day. With some air conditioning, that would help. A big party with Jesus. Lots of gold, and I see like rolling hills. A picture of people from all nations worshiping together. I think heaven is going to be like being in the inside of love, looking out. The rivers of water will be flowing down from his throne. Every piece of unexplainable hope that we as humans long for but can't attain. It's gonna be pretty sweet. We always wonder like if if we'll be married in heaven and I don't know about that, but I hope we are. I plan to do a lot of singing in heaven. Oh master, let me walk with thee. I hope I'll be able to fly. Lots of food. I hope oh, there's yeah. a lot of food. There better be a lot like of food. Like a lot of chocolate. And I hope they have filet mignon. Wow. Um, inexpressible happiness. I think the fact that we'll be with the people that we love and that love us. There's not going to be any pain. I think God will have a purpose for us there. I think children will obey their parents. I don't think we can really know that. Great. Can't wait. <laughs> I'm just looking for paradise. And it definitely beats the alternative. Amen to that. Well, we are continuing in our series on heaven about what God has prepared for us, for those in Christ, and how we long for that. Over the last several weeks, I introduced to you a definition of heaven from Randy Alcorn's book, the phenomenal book on heaven, and that definition is this, that heaven is resurrected life in a resurrected body with a resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. Would you say that with me? Heaven is resurrected life in a resurrected body with a resurrected Christ. That's what heaven is goes far beyond anything that we can even imagine. And today we're going to talk about what it means to, be, to have eternity with God. Just to recap, we dealt with the fact that the Scripture is very clear that we should set our minds, our hopes, our affections on things above, not on things of earth. In the second message, David taught us that the curse of sin, the curse of evil, the curse of wickedness, everything that went wrong is reversed. The curse is reversed and that you and I will live in a place where there's not even the presence or the vestige of sin. And then last week, he clarified for us the, the different heavens that the Scripture mentions. We talked about the first heaven, which is the heaven that we can see by day. It's the one that clouds and birds dwell in. The second heaven is the one we see by night, where the interstellar material, stars, planets, suns, those kinds of things. And then the third heaven is the place where God and the angels dwell, and where all those who are in Christ, when they die, they immediately go to that place, that third intermediate heaven, in anticipation of the fourth heaven, which is not created yet, and that is the new heaven the one that God will create when he brings the curtain on human history down to open up a brand new history where we will have heaven on earth, God dwelling with mankind. That's what we long for. It's what's coming. And so we're going to talk today about what does it mean to spend eternity with God. Question, if you had an opportunity of being able to spend a year with somebody, who would that be? Could be somebody that's a historical figure, somebody that's alive, maybe a, a lost loved one, a mythical figure. Who would you spend a year with and what would you do? What would you talk about? Maybe it's Michael Jordan. If you want to find out about basketball, find out from Michael about that. Or maybe Thomas Edison, his incredible mind for inventions. Or Martin Luther King, Jr. Or Martin Luther, the, the famous reformer. Whoever that would be, here's what I understand what would happen. You'd spend probably about, you know, a couple of weeks talking about everything that they know. And me, I'd get kind of bored after a while. I'd be like, okay, this is good. I think I know everything about basketball there is to know. You got anything else? And Michael Jordan would probably say, I got nothing. Consider this. Nobody knows everything about anything. Nobody knows everything about anything. But God 
knows everything about anything and everything. What would it be like to spend an eternity with the infinite God? There's some misconceptions that we have about heaven, unfortunately, and it's come sometimes fueled by what we see in culture media. I want to show you a movie clip in a, in a few moments from the movie, What Dreams May Come. It's a dark movie, but it was written kind of based on Dante's Inferno, and in this movie, physician Chris Nielsen, played by Robin Williams, he falls in love with Annie, who was an artist, impressionist artist, painting, and you'll see how that factors into the vision of heaven through Annie's eyes and through Chris's eyes. They get married, they have two kids, life is blissful, perfect, until a car accident tragically takes the life of her children. It sends them over the edge, their marriage is almost in ruins, and they make that decision to endure and not to go through a divorce, and one year after they made the decision to not divorce, Chris Nielsen, the physician, he dies in a car accident, and that sends Annie over the edge in a sense. She almost becomes suicidal, very, very morose, very, very depressed. And Chris, who is dead, is not ready to move on to the next life, still lingers around to help his wife. Even though he's in a disembodied state, she can't see him or feel him. And, but there's influence, and he realizes that his efforts is just making it even more difficult for her. And so Chris finally decides it's time for him to move on and to claim his new life. In this movie scene, you'll see Chris going through that proverbial tunnel of light. And then he will wake up in this artist, this producer's um, definition or depiction of what heaven will be like. Take a look at this clip from What Dreams May Come.
Maybe I'm not in your heaven after all, girl. Maybe you're in mine. Heaven becomes basically one of Annie's paintings come to life. You see the colors and the beauty of that place, and yet heaven will be far greater than anything we can even imagine. Here are the things that I know that I get disturbed or concerned about with other people's depictions. In that movie, heaven is basically our idea. Heaven is basically what's important to us, what we value, and heaven is full of those things, which means that heaven, in this particular depiction, is all about us as well. And there's something that's even more disturbing. Later on in the movie, as, as uh, Chris confronts his spirit guide, played by Cuba Gooding Jr., Chris asks a question of the guide, where's God in all this? And here's the answer. He's up there somewhere. That even in heaven, God's not there. Heaven without God, in my opinion, is absolutely ungodly. And not a place you'd want to be able to live. Can you imagine that? Here's the thing to understand. Genesis 2.7 says this. Is that mankind was made as a result of the breath of God. That what you see on the outer shell, you can find on the periodic table. Right? But who we are in our essence, our soul, our spirit, our personality, is a result of the breath of Almighty God. That means that there is nothing that has been made that can satisfy us since our source is extraterrestrial. Our source is not of this earth. Our source is the nature of God. And no, we might try to fill our lives with all kinds of things to fulfill it. There is no satisfaction to the soul but God himself. My friends, you were made for nothing less than for your longings to be satisfied with God. Heaven is not just what's there, but who's there. And the source of that satisfaction being the very nature of God himself. King David said this in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Question, what do you long for? The deepest longings of your heart will never be satisfied in a thing but in the God who made all things. So we're going to take a look at a passage in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, but let me go ahead and give you a little bit of context because here's what usually happens. When we talk about what it means to be with God, sometimes I know some friends of mine, we got together and we discussed what it would be like to see God. We couldn't get past our inadequacy. We were like, we're, we're not worthy. We, we've done wrong, and before God, we, we'll just fall on our face, and we'll be ashamed. So here's the thing. Chapter 20 of Revelation ends with judgment. Chapter 20 ends with judgment, which means after chapter 20, there's no more judgment. It's finally done away with. So when you read and hear this passage of Scripture, Revelation 21 and 22, please read that with the idea that judgment 
being held accountable for all that's been done wrong is over. A brand new chapter opens up as we take a look at this revelation of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 21. In honor of God's word, may I ask you, if you're able, to stand and let's take a look at this passage, engaging our minds, our hearts, and our ears with this revelation. Verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The promise in the word of God. You may be seated. Please understand that to be able to describe or to explain what eternity with God is like, I'll do the best that I can, but it goes beyond anything that I can even imagine. But we have some clues here, some things that I find in this passage about what eternity with God will be like. I think, first of all, it involves seeing, that we will see fully and be seen fully as well. The passage here in Revelation 22, it says that we will see God face to face. We'll see his face. That should astound you because what we know of of Scripture is that only the pure in heart will see God. Only those with holiness will see God. God basically has said that if we see him in our current condition, to see his face is to see his face and die. So God is inviting us and allows us the opportunity of being able to see the face of God. That's a symbol of intimacy. That we will have intimate contact with God, the ability of being able to see him face to face. Now here's the thing. I don't know exactly what that means because the Bible says that God is spirit. So I don't know how we'll be able to see spirit except for this thing. We will not see God with these eyes. We will have a resurrection body with resurrected eyes that will see God as he is. We will be able to behold the beauty, the wonder, the majesty of the person of God. In Ezekiel chapter 1, they tried to make some attempt at being able to give that glimpse. And it says this, Above the expanse over their heads there was like the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. 
John's vision in Revelation chapter 1 of Jesus. He says, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. You get the idea that there ain't enough words in the dictionary to describe what John's seeing. We don't have enough words to describe the nature of who God is, and so we use words like like and the appearance of because who God is as he is goes far beyond what we can imagine. But can I tell you this? Personally for me, in light of all that I've been through and gone through, all that I know, I long to stare into the face of Jesus. to see the one who gave his life for me, his life for the world, the living image of God to peer into his glorious face. Is that a longing that you have? Not just for the stuff, but for the Savior to be able to look into his face That's what they call the beatific vision or the happy-making vision where we will see through resurrected eyes and we'll see him as he is with no filter, no hiddenness, no sunblock, nothing that would keep us from beholding the absolute, complete, eternal wonder of God. We will see him fully. But beyond that, I think not only will we see him fully, and that goes with what the psalmist said. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Do you have that longing to see God? Here's something else. I think we will also see God seeing us differently. We will see God seeing us differently. What do I mean by that? I remember... The first day I held my son, Nathan, as a brand new baby boy, I cut the umbilical cord, and there he was. And then a a few days later, as I would hold him in my arms in the hospital room while Kathleen was doing her rounds, walking around the hospital, I would look at my son, and I tell you, I thought to myself of such great joy, of such great pride, of such great admiration, the beauty, and I thought to myself, He's mine. A year later, my daughter, my princess, I held her in my hands. I looked at her, beautifully, perfectly formed. I looked into her eyes, into her face, same admiration, same joy, same wonder. She's mine. There are times, even as they've grown up, sometimes my son or my daughter will catch me just staring at him, and they're like, what? What are you looking at? The wonder, and I'm proud that they are mine. I remember the day of my marriage, 1980, February the 20th, and I'm standing there in my tuxedo with my, with my uh, groomsmen, and really, the groomsman is the best man. Just want to make sure you understand that. And I'm waiting for my wife, and all the bridesmaids are coming, and the bridesmaids, they look, they look fine. They look wonderful. They're, they're fine. Groomsmen, they're doing their thing, but the organ played, and all of a sudden, the door opened, and my bride, and I want to tell you, it's one of the most amazing things is not only to see the bride, but the look on the face of the groom and looking at the bride. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Stunning. Gorgeous. Beautiful. She's mine. And I'm hers. Got a little weepy. 
as she floated down the aisle to me. May I say this? My interpretation, I believe that for eternity, God will look at us the way a father does his beloved child. Always. I believe that Jesus Christ will look at us, the church of Jesus Christ, with the same wonder and pride and joy that a groom looks at his bride. Can I tell you that my wife Kathleen, there are times even now that I look at her, I see, her, I see the same woman. Still stunning, gorgeous beauty. You and I will be seen by God. We will look into his eyes and see the reflection of that kind of joy that God will always look at us that way forever. Nothing unpleasing, nothing out of place, nothing that would do anything but bring great joy. God will see us, we will see God see us that way as beloved children forever. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in the presence of the one who looks at us and sees us with that kind of wonder, of joy, of pride, of she, he, they are mine. I also believe that heaven will be the place where we, we will be fully knowing and fully known. It says there in 21, it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. That word for dwelling is the word tabernacle, or habitation or house. It's the same word used for what the Israelites did with the ark. That the ark of the covenant sheltered, was sheltered by the tabernacle, representing the presence of God. God basically says, I will tabernacle. I will be at home with them. I will make my dwelling place. Let that register for a second. That God deliberately, intentionally chooses to make his dwelling place with us. God intends to be at home with us, and we at home with him. The infinite, almighty, righteous, powerful, all-knowing God desires us to be home together. What does it mean to be at home with someone? It, I think it means a certain degree of familiarity. It certainly means that we can be who we are. We don't have to put on airs. We don't have to fake anything. There is an opportunity for intimacy. There's an opportunity for knowledge, to know. Intimacy, and I love the definition of intimacy, into me, see, we'll have that eternally with God. And knowing God ain't like knowing anybody. One of the characteristics of God that I love, my favorite, is the characteristic of infinitude. That means that God's characteristics are infinite in number, and each of them are infinite in measure. The Bible does not tell us everything we could know about God. It tells us everything we need to know, but not all that we could know about God. The Bible does not contain, if God is infinite, how many characteristics does God have if he's infinite? How many? Infinite, yeah. That's, that's, that's a whole lot more than a whole lot. God has infinite characteristics. That means that Webster's Dictionary does not contain all the words that can describe God. How do I know that? Because dictionary begins with A and ends with Z. In God, there ain't no beginning or ending. So therefore, he has infinite amount of characteristics. You and I will have an eternity to get to know those characteristics extremely well. But every one of those characteristics are infinite in measure. His righteousness, his holiness, his purity, his kindness, his tenderness, his affection, his power. All of those are infinite in measure. With us being at home with God and God being at home with us for eternity, there will be nothing more grand to explore than the nature of God himself. 
And he wants that. He wants us. He will make his dwelling with us so that we can know him fully, even as we are fully known. 1 Corinthians says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. The longing of our heart, resurrected by Christ, is to know God completely. Now, I don't think we'll ever understand him perfectly. But we will know God and explore him completely in an eternal relationship of love and affection. Which brings up the next thing. I think heaven will be a place where we will, be, we will have the full love of God and we will also fully love him. 21 says this, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The word therefore, wipe away, means to obliterate, to remove, to erase. The word for mourning is a word we use for grief, distress, deep sorrow, or suffering. It says that in his love that he will erase not only tears, but please understand, he will obliterate any cause for that kind of emotion. He'll erase it. There will never be a cause for us to experience any kind of grief or sorrow or suffering. God will remove erase both tears and the source. Can you imagine what that would be like to be in a world where there is no more cause for sorrow, no more cause for grief? We can think that sometimes the grief is caused in the death of a loved one or the illness that people go through. Can I tell you what causes sometimes me grief and sometimes the injustices in the world that causes us sorrow, grief? I understand that. Sometimes what causes me grief are the things that I do that offend his nature. And I know better. Things that I say, do, think, or the way I don't respond. Sometimes when I, when I really pay attention to it, it causes grief. Like, oh, my God, I am so sorry. And even though the forgiveness of Jesus is there to cleanse us and restore us, sometimes the residual of what we've done causes us grief, regret, remorse. Folks, in heaven, there will be no cause for that kind of emotion. We will never think, we will never say, we will never do anything that causes that kind of guilt or shame. I believe with all my heart, and Scripture seems to bear this out, that in that perfect environment, there will be no shame, there will be no guilt, there will be no fear. First John says this to us, that by this love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, you know what it's like. You're driving down the road, minding your own business. It's a casual drive. You don't have to get someplace, so you're driving what you believe is a speed limit, and all of a sudden, when you turn the corner or whatever else, a cop car is facing you. He's parked, stopped, he's just facing you on the side of the road, and all of a sudden, you freak out. You're looking at the speedometer. And you look, and, and, and you're fine. But, it's, but, but the very presence of a cop in a car with a possible radar, all of a sudden, we're thinking, I'm, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Folks, in heaven, no cops with radars. 
and no God who we fear that we might do something and he'll gig us. Some of you and, and I live with that kind of fear right now that no matter what happens, God's just looking for an opportunity to punish. In heaven, there, after judgment, no condemnation, no punishment, no fear that God will find something and get us. Because perfect love rejects fear. You and I are not perfected in love yet, even though the perfect love of God is with us. By the way, do you understand this? God will not love us more in heaven than he does right now. I don't get that. God will not love us any more then as he does now. It's, the, the idea is that when we get to heaven, God will be like, whoo, you look better than you did before. I love you even more now. Not at all. I couldn't stand looking at you on heaven, but now I, can, I think I can. No. God will not love us any more then than he does right now. But on this side of eternity, all we can focus on is what we've done and who we are rather than on all that he has done and all that he is. In heaven, there will be no more barrier. You and I will be fully, completely, perfectly, absolutely loved. We already in Christ are deeply loved by God. I confess to you, I do not understand that because I'm not perfected in love. Yet, that day is coming where there will be no doubt. And for us between now and then is for us to live in that love with great faith in a God who lavished his love upon us. First John says that see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. I love this word. Beloved. Beloved. He's speaking to people on earth in Christ. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Fully loved and fully loving. It fuels that kind of love that when God's love is implanted in us, then we were able to give that love away to others as an extension of his perfect love in us. And finally, I also believe that in heaven, eternity with God means that we will experience complete, full, eternal satisfaction with God himself. In Revelation chapter 21, towards the end of it, it says, And to me, he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty, I will give a drink from the water of life. That's not H2O stuff. It's not Dasani. That water comes from heaven and it is designed not for body hydration, but for soul hydration. A never-ending source of water. And by the way, I don't believe that there will be thirst in heaven, but I believe the satisfaction of the fulfillment of any thirst starts with God. That water flows from heaven. And it's designed for our soul. For our spirit, for our essence, who we are, sourced by the nature of God. A couple of months ago, I had the privilege of being able to go away on sabbatical, which is where our senior pastor David is right now, and for some of us on staff, how important it is for us to go away. Sometimes the regular daily devotionals, which are always wonderful, sometimes you just need more than simply just half an hour. Sometimes you need to be in the presence. And so I went away for about a week by myself, all by myself, to be with God, I took healthy food, 
I took some good books. I took some music that I could play, but I took along my Bible and a journal. And for those days, meditated, spent a lot of time in silence, hearing the voice of God. And I got to tell you, there was a restoration to my soul that changed my outlook on things. Being alone with God without having to do something, having to get somewhere, but just to be in that presence. Silence, solitude, stillness, to experience what my soul desperately needed. Every single one of us as human beings are desperately in need for the soul-quenching force and resource of the nature of God himself. And God basically says to all human beings, come and drink. Heaven, no more thirst. Because we will be completely, fully satisfied. Can I tell you what disturbs me? When I hear people talk about heaven sometimes, when we ask them, and they come to you, hey, what about, what about, what about... I hear in people asking about heaven a greater preoccupation for the goods of heaven than the God of heaven. A greater preoccupation for what we'll find and who may be there rather than who is already there. A greater hunger and longing for the stuff than the source. Now here's the thing. God wants us to enjoy the things he's created. Those things that we enjoy should lead us towards him. But if we enjoy those things or anything more than God, we're now in the realm of idolatry. All of those things in this world and even in heaven should lead us to a greater appreciation, a greater joy, a greater wonder of the source of all things, not what's created, but the one who made them. Our satisfaction is in nothing less and no one else but in God himself. And we will be eternally, fully, completely satisfied by him. That's what heaven's going to be like in the presence of God for eternity. That's his presence then. But folks, may I remind you that you and I are already in the presence of God now. God's not in heaven saying, man, I can't wait till they get here. No, we're in the presence of God now because of living on this earth, we can't see it, but we're already in his presence right now. At the end of time, when the history, curtain of history comes down, we'll see it properly the way it always is. So what can we do between now and then to experience his presence in preparation for his presence then? May I suggest a couple of things? Number one, drink from the river now. You don't have to wait to heaven to drink from the river of the water of life now. It begins with entering into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, confessing your sin and his resource of grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance and love by acknowledging your sin, acknowledging his forgiveness, receiving it, and living under his authority now. Drink now from the river. Don't wander off here, out of here, thinking only about, well, I wonder what heaven's going to be like. I can't wait to get there, unless you know that for sure. If you don't know, if you're not sure about that, then please, we would love an opportunity at the end of the service to pray with you for you to receive that source of soul satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. Number two, pursue holiness. Pursue personal holiness. The scripture says in Hebrews that we should strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one, anyone will see the Lord. That way, we are supposed to live our lives because God is holy. He is distinct. He calls his people to live distinct lives as well. Lives that are not based on their citizenship here, 
but on their citizenship in the kingdom to come, that we live as citizens of heaven that's coming. Also, live in the love of God. Live in, revel in the fact that you are beloved of God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Settle the fact and understand, revel in it, that you are already in Christ deeply loved. Deeply loved by God which enables us to respond with our lives in love and passion and affection to God, but also to love others, to love others as well. First John will say that if a person says that they love God, but they hate their brother, they're a liar. How in the world can you not love your brother who you can see and say that you love God whom you can't see? Here's a commandment. Whoever says that they love God must also love one another. If the love of God is coming to me, then the love of God should also come through me. Live in and live out the love of God. That's in his presence now in preparation for his presence then. And finally, I'd say this. Worship. Worship God now. I don't mean just in a service, although worship like crazy here, but live your lives in the appropriate, proper response. You and I were designed to worship God. You and I in our worship, it's what God delights in. It's what God deserves. And so both with our lips and with our lives, in anticipation of the heaven that's coming and the presence of God that's among us now, the encouragement is this. We must live our lives as demonstrations in response to the God who gave us his son, providing for us both abundant and eternal life and to prove to the world that he indeed is our supreme, our sufficient our sovereign source of soul satisfaction both now and forevermore. Worship him with all that you are in response to all that he's given through Jesus. That's an anticipation of the heaven that's coming in him. Amen? Amen.